It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review a monitor of the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 38 in our series for 2021. And today's date is Friday, October the 22nd. First, I'll be talking to Ashik Ahmed, the CEO and co-founder of the global workforce management platform and employer scheduling timesheets and communications company, Deputy, about the impact of the lockdowns on gig workers. And I'll be talking to economist Sinclair Davidson about how much we can recover economically. But now let's talk to Ashik Ahmed. Now, Ashik, Deputy is a workforce management company. What impact has COVID had on the workforce and particularly on gig workers? Uh, where do you want me to begin? It had like you know, it had a massive impact on work in general, especially shift workers. And most gig workers are shift workers. Okay, it's just that they're working without a direct employment or, or contract in there. Uh, I mean, one thing COVID has highlighted is the strength and weakness of society, country, leadership, you name it. Okay, where somebody was strong, it got highlighted really well. Where where people were, you know, any system or society that weakness we have had that actually got in according to spotlight and the failure of gig work was pretty much on the spotlight. Okay. The fact that these people do not have any protection, the fact that these people would not have many of the support schemes or other things that government had put in was definitely like, if you're a gig worker, how did you qualify for JobKeeper here in Australia, for example? So uh, yeah, there's been, there's been quite a lot of different uh, uh, challenges. And I've, I've seen that at the very front line with our customers, with the shift workers and with the gig, work, uh, gig workers. So I, I, I think this puts a big question about the future of gig work, in my opinion. Well, particularly when you've got a potential impact when lockdowns are lifted, will that have an impact on gig workers? It depends, okay? It depends on what kind of gig work you are into. If you are in, there's so many different categories of gig workers, but if you are in that, you know, delivery, then especially delivering goods, maybe not. I think maybe, you know, you you will keep thriving given the training that everybody, everybody got trained to be digitally savvy during COVID, especially online shopping and other things. So I think some gig workers will really thrive, but if you're a gig worker in, providing an on-premise service or something like that, then yeah, it remains to be seen in terms of what happens happens with them. So uh, I don't think it's a conclusive thing that they're a clear winner or that's the new trend. But uh, on-premise services could actually suffer? 
Yes, in some cases. Okay, there will be cases that you know. In some cases it will be a, a, a definitely a win. Some some cases it won't be. Like you know, in quite a lot of our customers who are in the hospitality business, okay, you would have gig workers that are on demand. They're not your direct employee. They're not the part time or the full time or the casual employee. But you have a uh, somebody who is non customer facing facing. Okay, be it cleaner or uh, dishy or some of these other roles that would be dis, uh, you know gig workers on demand. Hey, when you are kind of when you have a labor shortage in the country like it is right at the moment, yes, there'll be great, good use case with them. But over time, as that builds up, I'll see that you know that demand will slowly go down over time. I mean, my reading of it is, is the system isn't actually set up to help workers. Oh no! <laughs> Look, I mean, I did the whole gig work. I mean, I don't actually, I don't actually like the term gig economy. I like to call this the instant gratification economy. Okay, I am. I mean, we are all trained in today's world to get what we want, when we want, where we want it. I want to watch something. I can watch something on Netflix. I don't have to wait for weekly for an episode to come or something like that. Okay, I want to eat something. Uber app, uh, Uber Eats, bang. I want it. And I think you know, work has become like that as well to some degree. And this is what the gig economy has delivered: the instant gratification of earning money. I haven't gotten an Uber for a long time because of COVID. But when I used to, I mean, I I had something like a thousand plus more trip in Uber, and every Uber ride I've ever been on, I've asked the uh, driver, "What do you like about working at Uber?" Like you know, driving for Uber. The number one answer has always been flexibility. Okay, that instant gratification of being able to earn. Then I'm like, you know, what else? Guess what the second thing is, Leon? Go on. What's the second thing? There's none. Right. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. They really struggle to come up with the second thing. Like, you know, hey, do you think you're being a, you're learning a lot of things? You're being a better you than you were yesterday. Do you find a coach who is growing you? Uh, is it the money? You know, is it the people? There's all sorts of different answers, but there's nothing in there other than that of flexibility. So I, I, I don't see gig work over a long time being a great success. Okay, it's like, you know, do you want to have meaningful relationship and grow a family in life, or do you want to live on Tinder all your life? Sure, but I mean, the point is, though, the gig economy, or the instant gratification economy, as you call it, has yeah. been growing, and it's been growing right around the world, and it yeah. will continue to grow, and it was growing before COVID, and I suspect it will continue to grow after COVID. Yeah, I think, I think you know, it will kind of hit its terminal velocity, in my opinion, and it's not going to be a complete override of thing. I mean, as as I speak to our own customers, there is element of gig work in business for sure. But what you don't want gig work in is that if somebody, your employees at the end of the day is a representation of your brand, okay? In many areas, like be it hospitality, be it retail, be it tourism or anything that is experience related, your employees are a representation of your brand. That is not something you can outsource. That brand comes from your culture, your values. And somebody showing up for a gig work for one shift is not going to be the best ambassador of that. If it's something very, very transactional in providing a service, yes, gig work makes sense. But I don't see gig work being the mainstream, regardless of its growth. Or at least businesses that truly thrive in this world, where you know that's why I don't see gig work happening. Well, I mean, I would suggest that one of the reasons gig work accelerated during the lockdowns was because a lot of the industries had no work. I mean, suddenly people were working; they had jobs, but they were working zero hours. Yep. So they had to get gig work. So suddenly, someone might be working 
is a is a retail is a retail manager, suddenly they they, they become an Uber driver. Or yep. someone in tourism, the tourism industry was laying off people, universities were laying off people, so they become Uber drivers or couriers or whatever. To, to, and so that actually created a, a, an increase in gig work as well. Yeah, absolutely. But the thing is, if you put yourself on the shoes of the individual, do they want to keep doing the Uber driving or being the, uh, the courier driver themselves forever? Okay? I mean, people, as much as they're cash, but at the end of the day, I fundamentally believe that people don't come to work for work. People come to work to be part of a community, okay? a community that has a purpose and a mission, you know, working with other people, having a manager, somebody who grows you, where you are becoming a better you every day, and then also you're contributing to something, uh, uh, something larger. Many people, people keep one. There's no career development in being a gig worker in there. You may get to learn a lot of different skills. You may get to earn some uh, some money. But I would be, I fundamentally believe that. You know, I'm not saying that gig work doesn't exist. It absolutely exists, and there's a lot of value that we all benefit from. The society benefits from it. The economy benefits from it. But you know, the notion of that that is the future of work and employment is going to disappear is not a philosophy that I subscribe to or a vision, I would say that, and it will make a big difference in the world. Yes, but there have been a lot of industrial relations issues in, for firms like Uber, Deliveroo yep. is another one. So there is an issue that uh, maybe governments need to actually hold companies accountable for their staff's health and safety as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, this is, I think government is lagging behind the the whole regulations and other things. And, you know, even in, in, in California, there was a law passed that all Uber drivers must be considered as employees of Uber in California. And therefore, Uber must pay them, you know, health insurance and other benefits that a regular employee, for example, will get. Okay, there has been, I think government is trying to treat the symptoms as opposed to treating the root causes of all the issues that are happening. There's, a, there's definitely a, a lag in there. And was it in 2019, there was like a number of deaths that had happened with, you know, Uber, Uber riders, especially Uber Eats riders. Uh, I, I, I think like, you know, the government policies is, is still a long way to go, but the direction government has taken, in my opinion, is not the right one, where they're actually trying to fix the symptoms as opposed to fixing the, uh, fixing the root cause. In many cases, there can be a better system for delivering. Ultimately, like, you, know, you need to look at what is the consumer outcome we are driving and then coming up with the right system or the right methodology to solve that, as opposed to let's go put more regulations in gig economy. That's not going to address. You try to put those regulations in, there will be some other loopholes and somebody will be doing something else with it. Well, that would mean the governments would have to actually start working with companies like Deliveroo and Uber to come up with solutions. Yeah, absolutely. Look, what I have realised even with deputy and, you know, we do so many different things in workplace regulations and uh, labor laws and getting people paid accurately is that people in government who writes the laws have never lived in the shoes of the people who are actually there writing laws for, okay? For which the laws they write tend to create more loopholes and then they have to create more, more laws and rules to cover those loopholes and it's a never ending game. I suppose right. it keeps the lawyers happy and there's something. <laughs> okay, well, well, Ashik, that's all fascinating and thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me, Leon. And now let's talk to economist Sinclair Davidson. Sinclair, the economists are now tipping the 
the economy will bounce back in December. And whilst the September quarter is going to be a disaster, it's going to pick up. But the question is, we're not bouncing back into a zero COVID environment. And how strong will that bounce back be? I think it's very interesting because people are looking at what happened in the middle of last year. So we had a very strong rebound or apparently a very strong rebound after first lockdown in most parts of the world. And here in Melbourne, uh, the second lockdown, there, there was a very strong rebound. And everybody's imagining much the same sort of thing again uh, come December when the economy opens up. I'm, I'm far less optimistic. I, I'm I mean, yes, if, if you look at history, it did look like there was a short, sharp V-shaped recession. But in actual fact, given how COVID has evolved over the last year or so, that has turned into a sort of a very W-shaped, muddling through kind of affair. And unfortunately, I, I think we're going to be in much the same sort of thing too, because there, there are a whole bunch of things going on. One, the evolution of the virus itself has kind of made strategies which people adopted last year in, in, in periods of very high rate uncertainty as to how to respond. They've kind of made all of those redundant. We are not going back to a world of zero COVID, but we are going into a world of vaccinations. So that is a good thing. Let me just say, I, I myself am double vaxxed, and I think if you can be, everybody else should be vaxxed too. But I, I think we, we are going into a very different world. There will be people becoming ill. Hopefully death rates will decline, but there will still be a, a, a lot of, of voluntary social distancing, people not wanting to, to integrate as well as they used to. I don't see a sort of a, a, a rush back to work. If, if you kind of think in most major cities, a lot of people go to work via public transport and at rush hour, that public transport is very crowded. I, I just can't see that happening. So there's going to be a slow movement back to work. But there, there, there are even worse problems on the horizon. If you think about what's happening with supply chains. Now, unfortunately, for many, many people, supply chains are like very boring things. But uh, Supply chains are actually the lifeblood of the global economy, where goods and services move around the world as they are being produced and also as they've been delivered to consumers. Supply chains have become dramatically disrupted over, over the last year. And there, there, there's even been talk of, of well, I mean, I'm going to put this in scare quotes, Christmas being cancelled, because more or less, uh, a lot of people's toys and gadgets and all the sort of stuff that we now buy each other for Christmas, all of that stuff is going to be slow in arriving. So supply chains chains are dramatically disrupted. And at the same time, we're seeing massive price increases. So people are talking about inflation. Now, this is one of my bugbears. A price going up because of a shortage is not inflation. A price going up because the value of the currency itself is, is deflating or, um, or inflating, depending upon how you want to describe it, the value of the currency itself is falling is inflation. But prices have dramatically increased in many parts of the world and prices in Australia over the last quarter or so, I think they were three point something percent. But the price index in the middle of last year had fallen. So obviously, by definition, if it's returned to normal, you're going to get a high measured score. The, the, so I'm not yet sure that we're actually observing inflation as properly defined or price increases because of supply chain disruption. If we are observing actual inflation, that is a serious problem for the global economy. The other problem that we face here in Australia is that the unemployment figures that we are looking at simply can't be trusted. Now, 
to be fair to the ABS, they have a particular methodology which they follow, which they, they measure unemployment. And right now they're measuring 4.5% unemployment. That number is, is very much distorted by the fact that a lot of people are sitting at home, not actually working. A lot of people are not seeking jobs. So if you look at the actual measured employment rate and you add unemployment rate, sorry, and you add to that the number of people who are working zero hours, the unemployment rate in Australia right now is close to 10%. Now, when we open up, will all those people have jobs to go back to? And that is the, let's say the $120 billion, because I think that's how much the federal government have spent. That is the, the, the $120 billion question that we don't quite know yet. The, the government are spraying money at anybody and everybody. And of course, there are arguments they could be spraying more, but they are spraying money at anybody and everybody. That's all debt. It's all got to be paid back. And the issue too is I mean, a lot of industries are not going to open that that quickly, such as, for example, tourism. Yeah, so tourism is not opening quickly at all. Certainly domestic tourism, I I imagine, once the internal borders open up, but uh, that's not a given. But certainly an international tourist is not going to come to Australia and quarantine for a week and then go on their holidays. Bearing in mind, here in Australia, we've got very generous holidays. Um, Americans, for example, have only two weeks. So they're already losing two days flying here and back again. Uh, So they're they're not going to come here and quarantine for a week uh, when they've got a two-week holiday so and and of course australia's also been getting some bad press internationally so the international tourism market is not going to be opening up the domestic market may but bearing in mind those of us who live in new south wales and victoria might be going overseas so we might be spending all that pent-up cash that the government have given us over the last two years or so on overseas holidays so the domestic tourism industry is is in serious trouble and anything that kind of involves mass transit of people going into work i I'm simply not prepared to be jammed into a train like I used to be two years ago to to get to work in the morning because uh, I don't want to stand that close to other people, even though I am uh, uh, double vaccinated. Well, the other issue, too, is people are not going to be going back to their offices that readily, and that could affect companies massively. It can, it can. Uh, um, On the other hand, there, there, there is a silver lining in that particular story, the uptake of technology has been absolutely astonishing. So what we've actually seen over the last couple of years is that a lot of companies have massively increased their their, 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 their IT presence and their their technology presence. So there were always first mover disadvantages to a massive movement into into remote working and IT. But unfortunately, unfortunately, as a result of the COVID pandemic, everybody's had to take that same step at the same time. So there's been that massive movement. So there may be a a productivity bounce given the, the, the adoption of IT in the workplace that we observe. But bearing in mind, those sorts of productivity bounces we observe over time, over a long period, you know, over a long period of time. For a long time, you could see computers everywhere in the economy except in the productivity statistics. Um, I imagine we will see that too. But we have seen massive changes in, in IT. But that also means massive dislocations in the underlying economy. So we, we may be actually going through a massive structural change over the next few years, which may be very painful for us now, but of course down the track will be a, a much better story. But So you know there, 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 there are positives in all of this, but I, I kind to think coming back to your initial question um, are we going to see a massive bounce in the December quarter? Uh, we may see some return to normal. We may see coming off a low base. It looks very good. But bearing in mind all the economic activity that we've lost between March of 2020 
and where we would have been needs to be made up. We, we are a lot poorer than what we were 20 months ago. It's just not as immediately obvious because the government has been spraying money at everybody. But we are actually a lot poorer. So that lost economic activity added to the debt that we actually have to pay off because we do have to pay that off. Given the potential inflation costs coming out of this, these are actually a huge burden on the economy. And a lot of that is what economists call the unseen. So there's the seen and the unseen. A lot of what's going to be happening over the next while is the unseen. Um, I'm also thinking the the, the educational disadvantage of, of high school and primary school kids who haven't been to school for the last while. Now, a lot of people are very cynical about that, you know, about, you know, do kids need to sit there for five, six hours a day, every day sort of affair? And they probably don't. But at the same time, there, there's socialization, there's norms of behavior, there's playing with other kids, there's, there's, there's learning by playing, which 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 hasn't been occurring over, over, over the last 20 months. So I'm, I'm kind of thinking we, we're going to have to spend a lot of resources on tracking that cohort of kids and probably a, co- a cohort of adults who, who, who haven't traveled well during lockdown. So the costs of lockdown have actually been quite formidable. Some of it can be covered by money. And, and fortunately, Australia is a wealthy economy. We, and, and to the government's credit, they've kind of thought money is not going to be a problem here. But nonetheless, we still have to pay it back. We still have to track a cohort of people who have probably suffered very egregiously over over the last period. We still have to pay all those economic costs. There's no free lunch here. So what you're saying is the costs of the lockdown will also impact the economy. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, well beyond, yes, yes. Bearing in mind that if 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 there have been educational disadvantage now, we may be having trailing costs for the next 30, 40 years as people move through the workforce with uh, opportunities they would otherwise not have had. Um, bearing in mind, I also saw a terrifying statistic, job vacancies. The ABS have measured job vacancies are now 46% higher than what they were in uh, February of 2020. So people can't get into jobs. People are not changing jobs. People are sitting at home doing nothing. If, if borders remain closed for a longish period of time and we don't actually have that immigration intake, is the, the, the direction the economy would have taken also changes. Now, these are all things that we, we can discuss, we can speculate, we, we can talk about, but we can't know for sure what impact they would be. But the, the, the notion that there'll be a quick bounce back. Um, I kind of think last year, uh, Josh Feinberg said, oh, you know, we've had a quick bounce back. We're all back, baby. Uh, no, we're not. Um, when you're coming off a low base of, of, of economic activity, any change, any any reversion to the mean looks good, but it actually isn't. You know, it's it's the what we've given up that's that, that also needs to be counted. And, and of course, economists and, and sociologists and, and, and what have you, we, we will be debating for decades what the impact of all of this was. I mean, if you still think about it, Economists and economic historians are still arguing about the Great Depression, which was nearly 100 years ago. We're going to be arguing and debating about COVID pandemic for for a long, long time. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And indeed, the impact will be felt not only in 2022, but probably beyond. Oh, well beyond. I, I have no doubt we, 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 we will be paying off the debt for, for, for generations. If you kind of think back to the GFC, we hadn't actually fully recovered from the global financial crisis, which is now in economic history terms, almost ancient history. You know, 12, 13, 14 years ago, we hadn't paid off that debt. The Australian federal budget had not returned to surplus. Now, I know they were saying, oh, they were going to and all this sort of stuff, but they actually didn't. We hadn't recovered from that. A lot of the measures put in place after the GFC were still going strong. Uh, Quantitative easing was still occurring. So we've just doubled down on what we were doing after the GFC. Um, So we hadn't fully recovered from that. And now we got hit by this. So our our economies and certainly our public finance is incredibly fragile going forward. Luckily, we didn't have an outbreak of inflation, which you will recall, I was saying after the GFC, I'm expecting an outbreak of inflation. Now we're actually seeing an outbreak of price increases, which I'm, I'm still being cautiously optimistic is just supply chain disruption. And hopefully that will sort itself out fairly quickly. But an outburst of inflation would actually be catastrophic given high levels of unemployment. We were looking back at the 1970s and, and, and stagflation, which was not a happy place to be. Sinclair, that's all quite alarming. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, China's economy slowed in the third quarter as multiple headwinds from a property slump to an energy crisis weighed on growth. Gross domestic product expanded 4.9% from a year earlier, the National Bureau of Statistics said Monday, down from a previously reported 7.9% in the preceding quarter and compared with a median forecast of 5% in a Bloomberg survey of economists. Beijing's tighter restrictions on the property market have curbed construction activity and squeezed financing to the sector. Meanwhile, a worsening debt crisis at China Evergrande Group is now spilling over to other developers and contributing to a slump in land sales. On top of that, electricity shortages in September forced factories to curb output or shut completely, while strict measures to contain sporadic coronavirus outbreak continue to weigh on consumer spending. While China is expected to fix its energy problems, the property sector cannot sustain the insane levels of activity and debt that have defined it for decades. According to analysts, this is bad news for Australia, which still takes for granted China's insatiable appetite for its commodities. While Australia exports billions of dollars of high-end food and healthcare products to China's middle classes, a slowdown in construction activities like steelmaking is where it will really hurt. The argument here is that the way China's economy is now heading makes Australia's trading relationship, which is high in dollar terms, but concentrated in iron ore, coal and gas, extremely vulnerable. And the OECD has downgraded its outlook for Australian living standards over the next 40 years and said structural reforms will be needed to arrest the decline and deal with budget pressures from an ageing population. 
in its latest fiscal outlook to 2060, the Club of Wealthy Nations downgraded its forecast for Australia's per capita gross domestic product, which is the preferred measure for living standards around the world. In 2018, the group forecast per capita GDP to be 1.4% per year between 2018 and 2030. In its latest outlook, released on Tuesday night, it downgraded that expectation to 0.9%. The 2018 forecast for the period from 2030 to 2060 was for growth of 2% per year, which has been downgraded to 1.2%. And companies will be able to skip in-person annual meetings with shareholders and instead host online gatherings under emergency COVID-19 corporate relief that the federal government will make permanent. Rather than holding physical annual general meetings, or AGMs, companies will be able to hold hybrid meetings, a mix between in-person and online meetings of company directors and shareholders. If expressly permitted by an entity's constitution, AGMs will be able to be exclusively held online, provided that shareholders are given reasonable opportunity to participate. Some 75% of shareholders must agree to a change to a company's constitution to hold a virtual-only meeting. And Australian Retailers Association Chief Paul Zara said Victorian retailers lost $1 billion in trade per week during the lockdown and 25 to 50% of Melbourne's small CBD retailers may have closed. He said it could take a decade for the CBD in Melbourne to recover because of the 200-plus days of lockdown. A new analysis by the Australian Banking Association of ABA has shown a further shift by customers towards banking online and an increase in people paying with technology instead of physical cards or cash. The data reveals more than 80% of Australians say they prefer to check account balances, pay bills or transfer money online. More than one in three Australians with smartphones use a digital wallet. One in ten Australians regularly leave home without their wallet, instead using their phone to pay for items, up from just 4% in 2019. And less than 20% of Australians say they prefer to do any banking activities in branches. The trends confirm that customers continue to choose technology options over traditional banking methods. Recent RBA data also shows the continued steady decline of cash and credit cards. ATM withdrawals decreased by 20% in the year to August 2021, after falling 16% the year before. And more than 40% of the country's large employers have introduced or are planning to introduce mandatory COVID-19 vaccinations for employees, according to a survey conducted by national law firm Piper Alderman. The survey of 550 ASX-listed private, not-for-profit and government organisations found 26% were not planning to introduce mandatory vaccinations across their workforce, while a third remained undecided. The survey was conducted as part of the law firm's National Employment Relations webinar, where several participating employers expressed uncertainty around the legal implications and risks associated with mandating vaccinations in the workplace. An American juggernaut delivery service, DoorDash, has launched its first local advertising campaign as it seeks to topple the local dominance of Menulog and Uber Eats. The new advertising campaign introduces the slogan, We DoorDash, and aims to build consumer awareness that Australians can use a platform to have all sorts of products home delivered, from groceries to coffee to pharmaceuticals, pet products, and of course, takeout food. DoorDash, which is America's biggest food delivery service, launched in Australia in September 2019 and since then has expanded its range of verticals delivering food, groceries, pharmaceuticals, pet products, hair care and more. The slogan, We DoorDash, aims to highlight how the platform is part of the community and aims to highlight what the brand stands for in the reimagined convenience space.
And three global investor groups worth more than US $46 trillion, that's $62 trillion Aussie, have labelled Australia one of the least attractive destinations for green investment, alongside Saudi Arabia and Russia. The Investor Group on Climate Change, or IGCC, which counts Australian Super, AMP and Perpetual as members, has partnered with the Asian Investor Group on Climate Change and Ceres to release a report analysing the impact of climate policies across G20 countries on attracting institutional investment. While the United Kingdom and European Union are among the most attractive, Australia's failure to set a net zero emissions target by 2050 and lack of credible policies to decarbonise the economy have placed it among the least attractive destinations for green investment. Less than 2% of Australia's COVID-19 stimulus was spent on green initiatives compared to Canada, which spent 74.5% according to the report. And Australians hoping they will get fatter pay packets due to post-COVID skill shortages face disappointment after the Reserve Bank declared there are no signs of a takeoff in wages in comments that dampen expectations of a sooner-than-expected lift in official interest rates. Minutes of the bank's October meeting, at which it left the cash rate at 0.1%, show the bank board almost confounded by the lack of growth in wages despite cries from some businesses about a shortage of staff. The bank, which is spending $4 billion a week on government bonds as part of its quantitative easing program, has said it will not start lifting rates until inflation is sustainably within its 2-3% target band. To get inflation to that level, the bank believes wages growth, currently at 1.7%, needs to get above 3%. It is arguing that cash rate is unlikely to be increased until 2024. But economists and markets strongly disagree with the Reserve Bank of Australia's firm stance that the cash rate won't rise before 2024, believing surging prices in housing and energy will bring sustainable inflation back to its targeted band well before then. For the first time in many years, central bankers and global investors are witnessing a material pickup in inflation. Despite the evidence which shows inflation lifting to levels well above the target, the reaction of central bankers and investors has so far been muted. Some central banks have started to hike interest rates in reaction to the inflation pressures. Near to home, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand lifted its rate earlier this month to 0.5%. Some others in South America and Eastern Europe have hiked interest rates in reaction to the acceleration in inflation. Markets are now openly canvassing the prospect of higher interest rates in the US, Eurozone, the UK and Canada, among many others, perhaps within the next few months. Bond market, which inevitably moved well before central bankers, have seen yields jump in anticipation of the inflation interest rate hike dynamics. The moves are relatively contained at this stage, but clever investors are looking for a further sell-off in bond yields once a penny drops more widely that inflation is accelerating. In Australia, the RBA has largely dismissed these pressures, signalling that, on its assessment, inflation will remain low and it will not be required to hike interest rates until 2024 at the earliest. Markets are ignoring this guidance, with the start of the interest rate hiking cycle starting to be priced into the later part of 2022, just 12 months from now, and around two years before the RBA reckons it will need to move. The current official rate is 0.1%. The market is pricing in as 1% by the end of 2023, and with further increases through 2024. An Australian casino giant Star Entertainment is facing the threat of a class action lawsuit, the revelations of its alleged failures to confront money laundering and terrorism financing risks, wiped out nearly $1 billion in shareholder value. Law firm Morris Blackburn has begun preparing a class action on behalf of Star's investors following revelations in The Age, The Sydney Morning Herald and 60 Minutes last week that the ASX-listed Star has been enabling suspected money laundering and organised crime at Sydney, Brisbane and Gold Coast Casino for years. 
It was revealed last week that two confidential reports were provided in 2018 to Star's board, which included Chief Executive Matt Beckier and Chairman John O'Neill, warning the company's anti-money laundering risk assessment system does not consider terrorism financing as required by AMLCTF, the Anti-Money Laundering and Counter-Terrorism Financing Act. Star's assessment of some gamblers appeared to understate the level of money laundering risk, the reports added, and Star had no documented money laundering risk assessment or risk assessment methodology for Chinese high roller two groups known as junkets. On October the 11th, the day after the revelations were published, Star's share price plunged more than 20%, wiping out nearly $1 billion from its market value. Its shares have since recovered slightly, but are still trading about 17% lower than the start of the month. The class action would allege Star engaged in misleading and deceptive conduct, breaches continuous disclosure obligations, and conducted its affairs contrary to the interests of members as a whole in the period. And senior figures and from listed gaming giant Star Entertainment, will be grilled at public hearings into allegations a company failed to prevent the organised criminals and money laundering infiltrating its Australian casinos. Senior barrister Andon Bell SC, whose exhaustive public examination last year of Star's main rival, Crown Resorts, led to Crown being declared an unfit company to hold gaming licence in New South Wales, will examine Star's operations at public hearings next March. And poker machine operator Aristocrat Leisure has lobbed a $5 billion bet on acquiring UK online gambling software and content supplier Playtech to supercharge its strategy of following punters wherever they go, from casinos to mobile phones. Playtech boasts that it can only allow gamblers to play any game on any platform and on any device using a single wallet and single account anywhere and at any time. It comes after a tumultuous 18 months for gaming operators, with pokey venues and casinos forced to shut their doors during the COVID-19 pandemic, even powering down Las Vegas's famed strip early as a global outbreak. At the same time, online gaming has surged. Aristocrat Chief Executive Trevor Croker said acquiring Playtech would provide Aristocrat with material scale in the US $70 billion, that's $94.4 billion Aussie, online real money gaming industry. It comes as Aristocrat says it expects net profit after tax and amortisation to be $864 million for 2021. And Rio Tinto was at best incompetent and at worst deliberately deceived traditional owners over plans to blast Dukan Gorge, according to the parliamentary inquiry in the debacle, with key government members of the committee calling for a formal judicial review into Rio's actions. The parliamentary inquiry into Rio Tinto's destruction of the Dukan Gorge rock shelters delivered its final report on Monday, recommending sweeping legislative changes across the country to prevent a repeat of the event. The report puts the mining industry on notice about their dealings with traditional owners, setting out a roadmap for a higher standard when it comes to sensitive sites. The committee's final report put the blame for the decision to destroy the 46,000 heritage sites firmly on Rio's quest to make quick bucks, savaging the company's lack of regard for its social responsibilities in the lead-up to the reputational disaster. The committee also recommended new Commonwealth legislation for stricter protection of sacred sites and improvements to the Native Title Act. New legislation should be underpinned by the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, the committee said. And Australian Mercedes-Benz dealers have launched a $650 million legal action against Mercedes Benz Germany, claiming the powerful parent company is forcing an abrupt change in the business model that undermines millions of dollars in dealer investment. 
More than 80% of independent Mercedes dealers have combined forces to fight a decision by Mercedes Germany and parent company Daimler to change from a dealership model to an agency model with limited compensation, no negotiation and no ability to recoup sunk costs or future earnings. The Mercedes-Benz case was lodged on Monday evening in the Victorian Federal Court and seeks $650 million in damage in the Competition and Consumer Act and Australian Consumer Law, arguing Mercedes-Benz has strong-armed dealers into non-renewable agreements, decimated the value of their dealerships and in no way operated in good faith. Mercedes-Benz Germany alerted Australian dealers to the change in business model in February 2020. It said dealers would stop operating as independent retail businesses and become agents of Mercedes-Benz, receiving a fixed commission for car sales at fixed prices, with all customer relationships to be owned and controlled by the parent company. According to their statement, Mercedes-Benz informed the Australian dealers it would provide a limited safety net for loss of profits for two years, but all dealers were required to sign new four-year agreements with no right of renewal. The dealers had until September 2021 to sign the new agreements, or they wouldn't be provided with Mercedes-Benz vehicles. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Bob Sharpless, the Deputy Chairman of the Springfield City Group, which is Australia's first private company to create a smart city. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest jobs figures. In the meantime, catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 